on your way in, and the handout will help you as we walk through this book, The Peacemaker. I like to do on Bible studies, I typically do Bible, but we are, this book is one of the most helpful books we've found for solving conflicts, very biblical, very helpful, and I think you've enjoyed, I hope you've enjoyed it. I know a lot of you have responded, told me that you've really enjoyed this study, so thank you for your feedback, um, and uh, I've really enjoyed going through this in depth. I feel like I've really had a great time looking at this book again. I, I've given you a little bit of a rundown. Some of this is going to be reviewed from last week, from chapter 10. We talked about forgiveness, and the standard for forgiveness is we forgive as God forgave us, which is very much uh, means that we don't have any reason not to forgive. I mean, Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So the direct command for us is to forgive as God forgave you. Three things forgiveness is not, this again is review from last time, forgiveness is not a feeling. You don't feel forgiving. Uh, you might not feel good when you forgive someone. It might not feel like uh, a good thing, but it is the right thing to do. It's a choice, right? Forgive, forgiveness is not forgetting. That's a a misnomer. People often have said, you know, forgive and forget, forgive and forget. And sometimes you cannot forget. What happened to you is so severe, but that because you cannot forget something does not mean that you cannot forgive. In fact, God is not one who forgets. God chooses to not remember. And there's a huge difference between the passivity of forgetting and the intentionality of not remembering, right? We talked about this last week. So that's important to do, important to remember. And then thirdly, forgiveness is not excusing. So you're not saying that's okay. You're not saying no big deal, because forgiveness is saying, no, it is a big deal. This is a big deal. It's sin against God, and we need to deal with it. So that's what forgiveness is not, what forgiveness is. In the book, page 207, he says, to forgive someone means to release him or her from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. The idea of releasing is huge. The, the Greek word uh, has to do with that, releasing. So he also says forgiveness is a decision. It's a promise. And do you all remember the, the promises you make when you forgive somebody? What's the first one? Okay, yes, but on the, uh, uh, that's the biblical way of saying it. So you're thinking Bible, that's good. But on the sheet, what he says is, what's the first thing we are to not, promise not to do? Not to dwell on it. I will not dwell on this. I will not think about this. That's hard. You're making a promise that you're not going to sit around and remembering what this person did to you and, and, and dwell on it. We know what dwelling means, right? It means you live there, Right? You live on it. You think about it. It's, it's on your mind constantly. What's the second one? I will not what? I will not bring up. And, and this is mostly, I mean, when I, when I talk to people who struggle with this, mostly it's people who are close to each other, like a husband and wife, right? There's been an offense, and then something comes up in the future that reminds that person of what happened in the past, and what do they do? Um, they, they do some excavation work, right? They, um, they bring up the past, and they talk, about, uh, they talk about what happened in the past, and um, it's not good. So you're, you're saying, I will not bring this up again to use it against you. Third, I will not talk about it to others. I will not talk to other people about this. Um, and this includes you parents talking about your kids. I, I've heard parents do this before where they say, Man, you wouldn't believe what my kid did the other day. What an idiot. <laughs> they didn't say it that way. But they said something like, man, you wouldn't believe what my, oh, my kids, man, they're, they're terrible. And they, and they talk about their kids this way, 
And I, I think that's, you know, if the kid is, is asked forgiveness, you ought to forgive them. And that means you don't talk about that with other people, um, unless you're seeking help. Now, if you come to a pastor or you're coming to a counselor, you're saying, look, I have a child who has a problem and this is what they do. That's a completely different situation than if you're just talking about it, right? And then fourthly, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. That's the whole point of forgiveness is to restore that relationship. So what are some steps to take to overcome unforgiveness? He talks about this, confirming repentance. I, I didn't get enough time to talk about this because we're not supposed to withhold forgiveness unless we, are, we believe someone's repented enough. That's not what he's saying. The point he's making is that we're actually trying to discern that they are actually dealing with sin and not just trying to cover it up. Because here's what happens sometimes, right? It's like if somebody knows how this works, like if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, and you know how forgiveness works, you're like, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? And it's like, no, wait a second, that was way too quick. Like you just kind of you know, went right past that. We didn't talk about the issue. Like you sinned, and then you said, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? And we didn't really talk about it. Well, you're not forgiving me, so you're being, uh, you're being unrighteous right now. You've got to forgive me for my sin. And if they say, okay, I'll forgive you, now we can't talk about it. <laughs> okay. It's almost like somebody uses it to manipulate or to box somebody in. Uh, the other example I've given here is of, of confirming repentance has to do with if someone is just saying, well, forgive me for everything, right? Or forgive me for all the things I've done against you. Okay, that is not acceptable. That's not acceptable. You cannot do that. Because you don't know what you, they don't know what you're asking, right? They don't know if you're talking about lying or if you're talking about adultery or if you're talking about murder. Like, we don't know. What are you talking about? All the things I've done against you. Probably not murder if that's the case, but, but I don't know all the things you've done. Like, what, what are you talking about? And, I, you know, it's difficult for a person to legitimately forgive someone if they don't know what it is they're being asked to forgive them of. So, that's what I believe that is referring to. And so the second bullet point there is to renounce sinful attitudes and expectations. You know, maybe if you're struggling forgiving someone, you have an attitude problem or your expectation problem is incorrect. The third step you can take to overcome your own unforgiveness is to assess your contribution to the problem. So, okay, if I'm struggling with this, is this because is this because this is really partially my problem? And we talked about this with removing the, the log from your eye, right? Um, next, recognize God is working for good. God is working for good. Remember God's forgiveness. This is a little bit review. Remember God forgave you, so you should forgive others. Does anybody remember what Matthew 18, what the story is in Matthew 18, 21? No, that's Luke 15, Matthew, close. Yes, there it is, the, the debts, right? The, the servant who owes a great debt. And he goes and he gets forgiven of the debt, and then he goes out, and what is the first thing he does? He finds somebody who owes him like nothing, and he throws him up against the wall and says, pay me everything, uh, or I'll throw you in prison. And the guy says, be patient with me, and I will pay you all, which is the exact same thing he said to the king, and he is not patient with him. And so there's an unforgiveness there. So recognize God's forgiveness. We are the person who's been forgiven much. As he said at the beginning of this chapter, we are the most forgiven people. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving people. Right? Lastly, draw on God's strength. Recognize this is not possible without God's strength. So draw on God's strength. Um, 
Forgiveness and reconciliation. Okay, so this is a really interesting discussion. These two things are not the same. Talk to me about what's the difference between forgiveness. I'm sorry, I'm writing so small. Forgiveness and reconciliation. Think about it. How would you distinguish between these two? Yes, sir. Okay, yeah, that's good. So you say that forgiveness, one party forgives the other party. So like there's a wronged and there's a person, there's a person who's been wronged and a person who has wronged, right? The offender or the offended. Um, and then the reconciliation is when they're both living in harmony. That's good. That's good. What other, what other nuances are there about this? That, that, I really like that. That's excellent. Yes, sir. Forgiveness happened, but never really have close records, never really have that close relationship. Yeah, your, your forgiveness can happen in a moment, but reconciliation may take time or may not happen. Um, there may be people who have done really, really bad things to you, and really reconciliation is not quite possible because of the kind of sin they've committed against you. Like, you, it would not be right for you to develop a relationship with that person especially if abuse situation has happened, like it just would not be right for you to develop that. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about what you're saying now when you read the one about uh, it hinders our personal relationship because right. a lot of times the, the offense will change the relationship. It will. And, and it's just, and, and, and the dynamic of the change will just, you can try to fake it, but it was changed, it's changed. Right, and, and so, right, and so the goal is reconciliation, most of the time. Restoration, reconciliation, forgiveness should happen. I guess I'm trying to separate these two because I think some people confuse them and think, well, I'm not going to be able to go to, like, okay, so let's use an extreme example. Let's say that, it's not that extreme, it happens. Let's say that um, you discover that someone in your family who you love has abused one of your children. Horrible horrible thing. Can you forgive that person? Yeah, you're required to. But what does reconciliation look like? Is it, is it that you used to have that person come to your house and they used to be able to babysit or whatever, and you're not going to let that happen again? You'd be a fool to. But I think some people think, well, in order, if I have to forgive him, that means I have to put it back the way things used to be. I've heard people say that, things the way they used to be. That's not necessarily the case. You can forgive somebody, and reconciliation or restoration is not necessarily going to always be exactly like it was beforehand. There are certain things that people do, sins that you commit, that cannot be undone. So uh, let me give you the answers here. What he talks about, and I like, I'm going to draw a little bit on the board because I like the way he, he describes this. is like, it's like um, that if you think of, of a wall of separation between two people, and, and, and what happens is when forgiveness comes down, it knocks down, when forgiveness comes, it knocks down the wall of separation between the two people, okay? There, if, if I have something against you, you have something against me, there is a wall that is built between us. And what forgiveness does is it knocks it down. Now, what, what restoration is or reconciliation is, it's a process the process of changing attitudes that leads to a change in relationship 
And he describes it like, okay, now you've got a bunch of rubble between the two of you. And you've got to clean it up. Okay, you've knocked the wall down, and there's bricks everywhere. And you have to take the time to sort through the bricks and move them out of the way and restore that relationship to where it should be. And I, I'm not giving you excuses for holding on to grudges or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that, like, think about the story of Joseph, okay? When Joseph and his brothers, there's an interesting dynamic here. When Joseph forgave his brothers, um, there's still some stuff that goes on after that as part of the reconciliation process until the very end when they're finally, re- even after their father dies, are they finally reconciled? Like, they're still not sure how Joseph's going to treat them. I don't know if you can use that as a proof text for anything, but I'm saying that it's interesting to me that, that these things are, are different, and reconciliation is the goal most of the time, but give it time and give it, allow there to be some time for reconciliation to happen. It's a process, and it's like clearing the rubble between the two people. Okay, uh, Andy and then Bill. Yeah, I was thinking of the forgiveness is like a legal thing, fitting things right, justifying right. but... Uh, Reconciliation is restoring that relationship. That's good. So, and he says, like, the, the, the forgiveness is like the legal thing. It's like getting things right. And then the reconciliation is the restoring of the two. Bill? I was just going to mention, you know, what you're saying is great. I'm just saying that when uh, you forgive and then reconciliation, <clears throat> what makes that meaningful and it can work is if each party draws closer to the Lord, realizing sin is sin. If I've sinned against somebody, first I've sinned against the Lord. And so if I get right with the Lord, and I'm saying each party realizes their sin and starts, you know, acknowledges that before the Lord and starts growing in the Lord, as each party grows in the Lord, then that's really what can help them come together. Yeah. Is because they're ready. They're both going towards God. Yeah. It helps can help that. No, it's, it's, a person doesn't grow, though, it, it's very difficult unless they're growing in the Lord. That they that, that's a really good image, and Bill's point is that people must be growing towards Christ-likeness, growing towards the Lord, if they're going to grow closer together. I want to read a little bit of this, because I thought this was helpful. You can bear with me one second. He says, being reconciled does not mean that the person who offended you must now become your closest friend. What it means is that your relationship will be at least as good as it was before the time occurred, and once that happens, an even better relationship may develop. As God helps you and the other person work through your differences, you may discover a growing respect and appreciation for each other. Moreover, you may uncover common interests and goals that will add a deeper and richer dimension to your friendship. So it's possible that reconciliation might even deepen your relationship with that person. You might actually become better than you were beforehand. Um, but reconciliation requires that you give a repentant person an opportunity to demonstrate repentance and regain your trust. It is a slow and difficult process. Um, I want to um, move to this next section, which he talks about principles for replacement. How He says um, uh, the problems of reconciliation can be significantly reduced if you pursue reconciliation on three different levels. So I need people to turn to these verses for us. Somebody turn to Philippians 4, 4 to 7. I need somebody to turn to 2 Corinthians 2, 7, and then 1 John 3, 18. Who's got, who's got uh, Philippians 4? Okay, Donna, Philippians 4, 4 to 7. 
God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Okay, the first area is our thought. We must stop thinking about unpleasant experiences and replace these thoughts with what God will have us think. Um, he says, um, especially look at 4.8, he talks about uh, whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is of good report. Uh, think on these things. Our thoughts are where the battle happens. We must, in our thoughts, replace wrong thinking with good thinking. So it's not enough to stop doing something, you need to replace it with what's right. This is the replacement principle. Secondly, 2 Corinthians 2, 7. Okay, Cassie? So that on the contrary, you are brother to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Okay, so this is talking about a person who had sinned and then was restored. And what does it say they're to do? They're going to forgive and comfort him. That is, they are to actually do things. So, in thought, you are to replace. In word, so in speech, in how they talk to him, they are to actually speak to him. The last one's in deed, 1 John 3, 18. Okay? Tony? Let us, wor- let us love in action and in truth, or in deed and in truth. We are to to replace, so the replacement principle for, for these things, if you're having a hard time with someone as you're working through this process here, is as we teach here often, is there's a put off, remember Ephesians 4, there's the put off principle, right? There's the put on, and then in the middle there's the renew your mind. And what he's talking about here is putting off the old and putting on the new, that is replacement. It's not enough just to stop doing things. Just stop. Like, have you ever have you ever had that experience where somebody says, you know, just stop thinking about a pink elephant? Now, what are you thinking about? Why is it you're thinking about a pink elephant? I told you not to do that. You know, because because if you, it's hard not to think about something that you're thinking about. But what he says is that we are not. It's not that we are to just stop thinking about things. We are to start thinking. We are to replace our thinking. When it comes to our actions, um, our, our words, if you choose to speak well of people, it will actually make an impact. Choose to say nice things about people. Good words make a difference. Even if you don't feel it, there's this idea that you have to, in our culture today, that you have to feel like it's feelings that matter the most, and then your actions don't really matter. Actually, you can, um, anybody who's, who. Uh, I mean, think about it. How many, how many of you have ever tried to uh, work out or lose weight or go on, go, like, do a running thing? I remember when we started running years ago, and it'd be like, I didn't want to run. If I waited for when I felt like running, I would never run. But what you do is, what do you do? How do you do it? You just do it. And then once you're running, you're like, you know, I kind of like this. I enjoy this. I'm, I'm glad I'm out here. That was about three miles in when you're like, okay, I'm finally glad I'm out here, right? But like if you, if you had to wait till you wanted to do it, you would never do it. The same thing here, you, you just you, you speak truth even if you don't feel like it. You do what's right, and it will have an impact. And the same thing for deed. When you act out of love, it will actually soften your heart, and you will find it easier to love them. You should actually love them that way. Okay, any other questions or comments on on forgiving people. I know it's, that's a th- that's a th- yes ma'am. On the reconciliation. Yeah, sure. Not to the extreme that you've been able to get, but lots of us have been betrayed by friends. Right. So you can forgive them and you may have is it okay to have partial reconciliation? Like you can 
Yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> some of that's. No, I don't. I don't think you require. I don't think the Bible requires you to trust people with secrets if they've chosen. If they, if someone has proven themselves to be unfaithful, wisdom says you take that into account when you when you deal with them. Like there are things. Let me give you an example. Like um, the Scripture actually gives requirements for people in leadership at churches, okay? So, uh, the Bible says that a pastor has to be a husband of one wife. Now, people who have had multiple marriages can seek forgiveness for the wrongs they've done and can be forgiven and can be restored and have great relationships. But there's a a consequence. There's an effect. God clearly says in His Word that uh, a pastor has to be a husband of one wife. So, I mean, that's, that's just, there's an impact. Like, everything we do has an impact, right? And so, if I were to betray your trust, and you told me something, and I go tell everybody, um, and then I say, oh, please forgive me, and you say, okay, I'll forgive you, but it doesn't mean that now everything's erased, that there's no consequences. We talked about, I think of that more in the realm of consequences. Remember, we talked about this last time a little bit. Sometimes forgiveness does mean the consequences go away, but a lot of times it means it doesn't mean that. A lot of times there are just natural consequences. You get in a you go you you drink and you drive and you get in a car wreck and you hurt somebody. Okay, those are consequences you'll have to live with the rest of your life, right? That doesn't just magically disappear if they forgive you. So um, so no, you're not falling short of being a Christian, but you should not have a grudge against that person. And you should not talk bad about that person. You should not going around telling people that that person betrayed you. See, this is, this is where, exactly, it goes back to, so you shouldn't go around and say, well, you shouldn't trust little Susie. Oh, man, you wouldn't believe what she'll do. She stabbed me in the back. That's why I don't tell her anything anymore. That, that is not forgiveness. Okay. Um, is that clear? Am I making sense? Does that make sense? Okay. It can get a little tricky, but I think the key thing is, is that you and your heart have to forgive that person and, and, and make those commitments that I'll never bring it up again, uh, but it can affect how you treat that person, how, how, what happens. You know, we all know this to be the case and just in practical senses, but it can be difficult sometimes to put in practice, yeah. Anything else about this chapter? Okay, I know we could talk about forgiveness. Everybody's been hurt. Everybody's had to forgive. There's some tremendous resources out there. I recommend um, From Forgiven to Forgiving. It's a tremendous book. Also, Unpacking Forgiveness. We've talked through both of those here at Harvest on uh, summer shakeup classes. If you want to delve into that, I'd recommend that. Turn the page over. Let's look at uh, chapter 11. I want to talk a little bit about this before we run out of time, and that is um, uh, this idea of sometimes conflict involves material issues, not just relational issues. So um, he gives us some principles here for negotiation, cooperative negotiation. So before we get into that, I want to, let's look at that verse, Philippians 2, 4. He says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Okay, so he talks about the difference when you're in a, situ- when you're in a situation where there's been a conflict and there is material issues at hand. The material issues have to do with physical things like uh, disagreement over the costs of how something is split, disagreement over who's at fault, over uh, a damage, uh, these kinds of things that can come up. 
He says there are, that a lot of people are not familiar with cooperative negotiation, are only familiar with competitive negotiation, like the art of the deal kind of stuff, where you start at your extremes and you work your way to an agreement. He says, all right, let's, let's talk about the inherent weaknesses of competitive negotiation. Now, I will admit I'm not a super good competitive negotiator, so I may not be the, the main person here to, to talk about this, but in the book he talks about this, so I'll just work with what he says. He says that uh, uh, competitive negotiation often fails to produce the best possible solution because the tendency is to focus on the surface rather than on the source issues. Because um, you, you, the assumption is that um, for one person to get more, another person has to get less. Like There's only so much of the pie, so I'm going to ask for this much, so you have to give me this much. It can tend to be competitive. Uh, secondly, it can be inefficient. Inefficient. Uh, the idea that you're, you're both starting by giving your compromise, you know, on this side. You start over here, he starts over here, then you say, okay, I'll, I'll come to here. He says, well, I'll come to here, and then you go like half of that. You're like, okay, I'll come here, I'll come here, I'll come here, I'll come. It's just, a, it's, it's, he said it, it tends to be that compromises get smaller and smaller every single time. It's inefficient. Also, lastly, maybe, maybe most importantly, when we're talking about Christians, it can significantly damage personal relationships. Negotiations like this tend to be self-centered. It tends to be looking out for whose interest am I looking out for in a competitive situation like this? Mine only. My only interests and concerns are my interests and concerns. Okay, it's about me. And there's nothing wrong with stating your position and having a position and looking out for your interests. There's nothing wrong with that, but that should not be only what you do. So that's a, da that's a danger there. So let's look at these, these verses um, that uh, scriptural commendation for cooperative negotiation. Matthew 20 to 3, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Let's look through these verses and see where we find some of these principles. Who can, who can find Matthew 22, verse 3? Okay, yes, sir. I think I had the wrong. I had the wrong verse there, brother. I'm sorry. Can you can you do 39 Matthew 22:39? I just printed the wrong verse there. Apologize. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's more like it. <laughs> okay. What's the principle here? What's the command here from Jesus? Love your neighbor. It's very straightforward, right? It's, not, like, it's one of those things where it's like saying your own words, and I, I can't say it any clearer than that. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So you already love yourself. That's a, that's a given. Nobody has to tell you. The Bible never teaches you to love yourself. Okay, that's something that you'll hear a lot of people say, you've got to love yourself before you can love others. That's not a biblical idea. That's nowhere in the Bible. The Bible assumes you love yourself, and I can prove you love yourself. You fed yourself today, probably multiple times. All right, you, you care about yourself. If, if someone were to start hurting you, you would, you would notice. All right, so you care about yourself. Love others. Does this other person you're negotiating with count? Absolutely. They're a person. They're a real person. So you have to love the person you're negotiating with. And in the book, I encourage you, if you don't have the book, it really is worth getting. He has a story that goes through the whole thing, which we're going to, I'm going to read parts of it when we get a chance next time. So not next week, but in a couple weeks. About, he calls the barking dog story. So there's two neighbors, and there's a neighbor who has a dog that's barking, keeping the kids up, keeping them up at night. 
How do you negotiate that? This is a material, it's not a, it's not a sin issue. A barking dog is not a sin. It's nowhere in the Bible. Y'all shall not have a barking dog. Okay, it's not there, right? So, so it's not a sin issue necessarily. It's a material issue. How do you negotiate that with your neighbor? And, and he walks through this whole process step by step. So love your neighbor. What about 1 Corinthians 13, 5? Who's got that one? Okay, yes, ma'am. Go ahead, yep. Love, let's read those. Can you read those slowly one more time for me? Love is, does not behave, does not behave so love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, does not seek its own is not provoked, is not provoked <coughs> and thinks no evil. Okay, so these are the attributes of love. Love is not self-seeking, right? Love is giving to others. Love is not well, looking out for number one. Love is concerned about other people, and this is very important. If we're going to negotiate with somebody about a material issue like this, you actually have to care about that other person, and that is not how our world works. So this is a biblical way of doing this. How about Matthew 7, verse 12? Okay, Colin. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of the prophets. Okay, I want to explain something here that's really interesting. He says... Whatever you want done to you, you do to others, right? So it's the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And then he says at the end, for this is what? What is he saying there? So in the, when Jesus talks about the Bible, when he talks about the Old Testament, the way the Jews talked about the Old Testament, and in fact, if you talk to a Jewish person today, they'll talk about their Bible. They won't call it a Bible. They'll call it a Tanakh. Maybe you've met a Jewish person, they'll call it a Tanakh. And the reason they call it a Tanakh is because that's a three-letter three letter word. Tanakh stand, is a T-N-K. Okay? And what this stands for, T, does anybody know what T stands for? Torah. And then N is Nevaim, which is prophets. And K is Ketavim, which is writings. So the Torah, the Nevaim, and the Ketavim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. When Jesus refers to the Bible, they, when they say the law, the prophets, and the writings, or if they say the law and the prophets, what they're talking about is the Bible. That's his way of talking about the Bible. So when Jesus says, can you read that one more time, Colin? Read, pay attention to how he finishes this verse. He says, treat other people the way you want to be treated, for this is the law and the prophets. He says, you want to sum up the Bible? Treat other people the way you want to be treated. He, like, he says, this is, I'm summing up the message of the Bible. So in the, when Jesus says the law and the prophets are fulfilled, he's talking about the Bible being fulfilled. Okay? Here he's saying this is the law and the prophets. This is the scriptural message. And it's not how the world thinks. It has to be taught from God's word. It has to be revealed. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 We've read this verse already. In fact, it's at the top of your sheet there. But does anybody want to read these verses for us? Uh, yes, sir, Sebastian. Keep my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's right. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Look out for the interests of others. 
okay? Nothing through selfish ambition. Does negotiation count as something that you can do through selfish ambition and conceit? Can, can you decide, well, I can negotiate through selfish ambition or conceit because that doesn't count, because the Bible doesn't count that, right? No, of course not. Do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit means even our negotiations with people should not be done through selfish ambition. So I want to make a note here uh, that loving others does not mean always giving in. Okay? Loving others does not mean always giving in because he says in Philippians chapter 2, you're to look out for your own interests and for the interests of others. Look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. We're not called to be doormats. You're not to walk around and let people just walk all over you. Well, I have to just turn the other cheek. I have to just look out for their interests. It doesn't matter what, what's good for me. I have to, it's good only for them. That's not what he's saying. Secondly, Jesus calls us to be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Jesus is not saying you're to be just run over all the time. He's saying you have to love other people. So we'll get into what that looks like with this uh, cooperative negotiation acronym coming up next. It's called PAUSE, and we'll talk about what that looks like in a couple weeks. But any, any questions so far? You see kind of the, the idea of that? Yes, sir, Bill. Yeah, the other thing I'll say in light of all that you've said and shared uh, about loving yourself and so forth, the Bible says in Proverbs 19.8, he who gets wisdom loves his own self or mm. own soul. He who gets wisdom. So in light of what you're saying is that, no, we're not always to compromise and give in because in order for us to love self and, and be what we need to be to others, we have to allow the word of God to be dictate Absolutely. and be authoritative in how we deal with situations. It has to be the word. That wisdom. Yeah. Wisdom is the Word of God. Absolutely. Word of God. If you, if you love, if you let the Word of God work in your life, it'll be good for you. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Bill. appreciate that. And thank you all for your good attention tonight. I hope you've had a good evening. And we'll hopefully see you here next, next Wednesday night. Uh, please come. We look forward to a great time with the Matskos. And I, I know you'll enjoy it. I know I will, too. Lord, thank you for your Word uh, that challenges us to reconsider how we treat others. I pray, God, that we would forgive, be forgiving. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to um, uh, care about other people as we even are sometimes forced to negotiate through difficult, difficult things. I pray, God, that you give us wisdom. Help us to love people the way we ought. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you. Have a great night.